So we've been studying our way over the last little while through the, the letters, Paul's letter to the church in Ephesus. And of course, by now, because I've said it like at least four million times, you know that we are in the more practical section, right? We said that chapters one through three, that's doctrinal, all these wonderful, glorious truths having to do with who we now are in Christ and what he's done and what the benefits and blessings uh, that are ours that have been conferred upon us because of what Christ has accomplished. Um, that was chapters one through three. And then we get to chapter um, four through six, and it's very, very practical, talking about how we really ought to treat one another, how we, walk, we ought to walk in love, walk in the light, you know, redeeming the time for the days that are evil, and how to treat one another. And uh, so things get, uh, things get quite practical in that second half. But today, we are going to eclipse all notions of modicum and, and, and practicality. And by the way, Lisa, can I see you before we get done? You're not in trouble. I just want to I, I, this is the only time I'm going to remember this. As, as a matter of fact, it's kind of miraculous that I'm remembering this now. But we've been wanting to collaborate on a little number. And so we'll, let's talk about that before you uh, check out of here today. We'll uh, actually get that going. I, th I, re I think of this like, you know, every, every week around Saturday night. I think, okay, that, yeah, there's plenty of time now to warm up for that. So anyway, we'll talk after church. Anyway, but we're, we're going to really, like, get down and dirty here today because we are going to talk about the meaning of biblical headship. Oh, man. The meaning of biblical headship and subtitled, Marriage as God Intended It to Be. Okay, I think the, there's really, there's so much, and it's so essential that we understand this concept of biblical headship. The Bible teaches that a husband has a built-in role in marriage, okay? He has a unique set of responsibilities. In his marriage, he is the head. How many hate this message already? <laughs> All right, but we're gonna we're gonna like break this down so that it's so that because when this is understood, I absolutely promise you that if you understand this concept and employ it in your marriage together with your spouse, you will see a radical improvement in your marriage, and a great deal of the things that are that come up as conflicts and, and issues like that will just dissipate if, in fact, um, you understand this concept of biblical headship, and so. Um, we want to talk today about what this means for the husband to be the head. Uh, there probably is no concept in the New Testament that is more misunderstood, okay? And there's probably none that is uh, less politically correct, for sure, than this one. And of course, in a time in which we're living, we started off this year by talking about cultural Marxism. We talked about that until you just couldn't handle it anymore. But of course, the whole cultural Marxism idea is that everything is grounded in oppression, Everything is oppressive, right? So there's oppression, whites against black. There's oppression, male against female. There's oppression, um, gay against or straight against gay. I mean, every aspect of our life. Even, and, and that is most particularly true according to that ideology or that narrative of the church. Okay, people see the church as an oppressive structure and specifically because of um, concepts like the one that we're going to take out and study today. Okay, people see this as nothing but this is male dominance. This is patriarchy. And so I, I, I want to be able to put all this 
uh, out there for us to take a look at today, because I think in understanding it, it so radically changes. So the man is the head of, the husband is head of his wife. What does this mean? What kind of leadership is involved? Why is this leadership given to husbands? Why the word head? These are the big questions uh, for us today. Let's take a look at the text that we'll be looking at. Again, we're in Ephesians chapter 5, so if you brought your Bible, you certainly are uh, in, encouraged, or if you brought your device, I realize many of us are reading the Bible on our device of choice. But here we go. Wives, submit to your own husbands. How many want to leave right now? <laughs> okay, just hang with me for a little while, Lord. Just a little while. Okay, wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Let's take a moment and present this time to the Lord. Heavenly Father, we come before you today full of, with grateful hearts to be able to come together like this, to have a place like this, to be able to sing songs and, and hear music and, and engage in, in lifting up our hearts in thanksgiving and in praise to you. And uh, Lord, we, just have, we have... We just have a, a laundry list of things to thank you for, and we are so grateful. And it's wonderful that we can come together at this time. It's the first thing that we will do this week, and hear your word and get ourselves recalibrated, refocused for the journey back out into this fallen, sinful, broken, screwed up world. So we thank you, Lord God, um, for this time, and we pray that you will bless this message so that it will it will affect the way that we live. It'll affect and touch our marriages. It'll improve our homes and our families, that our, our lives and our marriages and our homes could actually be an advertisement for your way of living. So uh, bless this time we pray. Bless the presentation, the teaching of your word. May it go down deep into the innermost part of our being, piercing down to the dividing asunder of soul and spirit and unmasking the uh, thoughts and the intents of the heart. So bless our time together, we pray, and use it so that wonderful fruit will be born. We pray this now in Jesus' name. And for his sake and all of God's people, said, All right. Now, the English word head can actually have three different meanings. Literally, it means that part of your body from the neck up. Okay, that thing that is sitting on your shoulders right now. That's the literal meaning of the word head. Figuratively, it can mean the source of something. We use the word in that way when we talk about the headwaters. Like right here in Oak Ridge are the headwaters for the Rockaway River. The Rockaway River comes out from under the ground here and all the way down to Boonton. Headwaters, we use, that, uh, we use the word head as the, figuratively as the source of something. And then figuratively, we use it to, uh, to mean the, the leader. 
or the boss. We speak of someone as the department head or someone who's heading up a committee or heading up a project. Here's the question. Which of those uses actually parallels the biblical use? Well, obviously, the first one is not relevant. The husband is not the head because he is the little thing that sits atop your shoulder, right? And because we're living in a time of very little Bible understanding and where we've gained all of our, our, our knowledge about human origin in terms of evolution, we tend to move instinctively to number three and assume that head must mean the boss or the leader. But interestingly, the primary biblical meaning is the one that we've just skipped. The notion or the concept that is consistent with Scripture is the concept of source. In 1 Corinthians chapter 11, Paul is breaking down or wanting to share with the people of, of Corinth this particular truth. I may even bring, I, I, I use this every time we do, uh, like I mentioned last week, someone had come and there, you know, marriage issues on the table and stuff like that. And I said, well, I'd be happy to, uh, to meet. And, but they thought, well, perhaps that would be, that would seem a little too, I would seem a little too biased. And I said, I would have no bias towards, uh, towards a husband or a wife. My goal is always to just simply explain to people the biblical concept of marriage, how God, what, how God designed marriage. Because if we're not functioning in marriage according to God's design, guess what? There will be problems. You cannot reinvent marriage. You, we cannot reinvent anything that God already invented except to our own demise. That's just kind of the way that it is. And so understanding this idea, uh, knowing that it is the source, Paul breaks this down to the people, and he, he lays out something that is kind of like an ancient flowchart. Um, here's what he says, and then I'll, I'll explain a little bit. He says, I, I want you to understand that the head of every man, he's speaking now of husbands, is Christ. The head of a wife is her husband. The head of Christ is God. And in verse 8, Paul goes on to add some texture to what he's saying. He describes it a little more clearly because in verse 8 he says, For man was not made from woman, but woman from man. Okay, now this takes us all the way back. The biblical idea of headship takes us all the way back to the Garden of Eden. There in the Garden of Eden, the first woman literally came from the first man. Okay, it's the biblical teaching about creation that defines the kind of leadership that the Bible calls headship. If we think of headship as just simply a synonym for leadership without factoring in the biblical notion of Adam as the source of Eve, we are likely to get it wrong and confuse headship with a sort of oppressive, tyrannical control and, and uh, domination that we see commonly um, manifested in the world. So let's take a look at the Genesis account, and here's something that I want you to notice, okay? The only rule or dominion that is being spoken of was given to mankind, was given to humanity generally. In other words, it is to be shared by all, or, or it was in, in the mind of God, in the plan of God, it was to be shared by all human beings. Okay, so here's the passage that we want to look at here this morning from Genesis chapter 1. Then God said, let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, 
he created them. And God blessed them, and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves. Now again, notice, dominion was given to all mankind together. That's why it says them, okay? God blessed them and said to them, have dominion and, and, uh, and rule over the earth, right? So there's nothing there in all of that about one person ruling over another person, one group of people ruling over another group of people. Prior to the entrance of sin into this world, there was no need for police force. There was no such thing as an army. There were none of the typical structures of domination that are so uh, prevalent in our world now because there was no crime. There was no war. There was no disobedience, so none of those things were needed. In Genesis chapter 2, the human rule of this planet is paired together with God's rule over humanity in what you might see as a covenant, a covenant relationship where God is laying out man's dominion or rule over the earth, but he is co-joining it together with God's rule over humanity. A covenant, it, by the way, is an agreement between God and man, It is so, and, and it is always has some type of conditions to it. All covenants, God made covenants um, with, with lots of different people. We'll talk about it a little more in a bit. But it is an agreement between God and man. And to, to Adam, God had promised life in exchange for obedience. And then through Adam, God gave mankind the charge to rule or to have dominion, using Eden as a prototype. God then observed that one man could not accomplish this gargantuan task all by himself. So God made for him a servant. No. God made for him a helper. A suitable helper. Here's the, here's the text behind that. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that man should be alone. I will make a helper fit for him. So Eve was made for the purpose of helping Adam with his rule to fulfill his function. But this did not in any way subordinate her to him. Why? Because in Genesis 1, God had already said that mankind, male and female, would rule together in a world without sin. Adam was not designated at this time as superior in any way. He was just simply the source of all other human beings. This is highlighted by the fact that woman was taken out of his flesh not out of the dust of the earth as he was made. Here's a statement uh, in, the, in Matthew Henry's commentary uh, where he really, he seems to really grasp this concept of what it meant for Eve to be taken out of Adam's side. It said, the woman was made of a rib out of the side of Adam, not made out of his head to rule over him, nor out of his feet to be trampled upon by him but out of his side to be equal with him, under his arm to be protected, and near his heart to be beloved. How many of the ladies are starting to warm up to this message now a little bit? 
I'm getting a little bit, a little sugar in here. Okay. Now, this fact that all humanity came from one individual source is profoundly significant. Throughout Scripture, whenever God established a covenant, he established that covenant with one person and then includes others into that covenant by linking them to that specific mediator. This was true of the covenant that God made with Abram. God made a deal with him, but he said, through you, all the families of the earth are going to be blessed. You will be the father of a nation. You'll be a father of many, great nations. So there's, there's all kinds of other people that are going to participate in this covenant that I'm making with you, Abram. But it starts with the fact that because you have believed me and that you have, you have obeyed me, um, we now have established an agreement and there will be blessings resulting from that um, obedience on your part and and all the families of the earth will enter into the blessings of that covenant. That same thing is true of Moses. God called Moses up to the mountain. And there he broke down all of the details of the covenant. Gives him the law. Moses uh, learns from God the revelation from God of all, all the stuff that has to do with the old covenant. All of that is then revealed <clears throat> to Moses. And then the Jewish people enter into it later on when Moses reads the book to them. And they all agree. Yes, we will keep the words of the Lord's covenant. So it was God's intention to include all human beings in the covenant that he made with Adam, starting with Eve. And that created the need to introduce all future human beings into the details of the agreement. Adam's headship wasn't because he was superior. It wasn't because he was male. It was because he was first. And from him, all other human beings come. Then every subsequent human being would later on need to be introduced to the covenant relationship and led in joyful, willing obedience to God with expectation of the promised blessings. This was the way that God had set things up originally. And all of us would have been included in those blessings had there not been a disruption in terms of Adam's sin. All right, <clears throat> So this obligation and authority to lead his family to God is what became known or what the Bible speaks of when it speaks of headship. The nature of Adam's headship is not personal superiority, not his maleness, but he was simply the source of all other human beings. God established his covenant with Adam when there wasn't anybody else, not even Eve. But when Eve came along, it was necessary for Adam to break down. She had never heard God say that. She, he, God did not speak the words of that agreement to her. He spoke the words of the, the, that agreement to Adam because Adam was the only guy around. But then it was Adam's job. And this goes back to the heart of this idea of what headship is. It was Adam's job to then speak to her to, uh, to get her to understand those things and, and, uh, and help her towards buy-in, right? <clears throat> So Adam's headship task was, A, to tell Eve what God has established. In other words, explain the conditions for obtaining God's approval and blessing. Number two, to model the joyful obedience required um, by, by God in terms of what Adam's side of the, uh, of the bargain was. And then to help Eve to respond in kind. There is no sense in the biblical text anywhere at this point that he was to rule over her. He was to lead her in submitting to God's rule. This is why the husband is the head. He is the source. There's a, there's a manifestation of this every time we do a wedding. Whenever we do a wedding, I'm the first person out. 
But that's because I'm, I'm representing the Lord in this, as the officiate, I'm representing the Lord. Immediately following me and the first person on the floor is the, the groom. The groom, yeah. Why the groom? Why is the groom the first person out? Because he is the initiator of this covenant. Under, unless, well, under normal circumstances, a man asks a woman to marry him. Right? As much as we would like, you know, so many would like to break all the, they see all this as patriarchy and chains and oppression, all the rest of it, but it still works that way. A man asks a woman to join him in the covenant of matrimony. So when he comes out first, that is the statement, I am the source. This is, this is why he's the head. Not because he's a man, not because he's smarter, not because he's anything, just because he's the source. That's why God has named him the head. Um, also, uh, going along with that, the ladies will be happy to hear that as the head, the husband has the greater um, share of responsibility for the success of that relationship. And all the men said, oh. <laughs> no, all the men said, amen. Right? But it's important that we would understand that. Because I started this thing. I asked her to marry me. She didn't, I didn't have to do that, and she didn't have to agree. But since I'm the guy that got the ball rolling here, I have a greater share of responsibility to make sure that it stays rolling and it rolls well and appropriately and, and, and in a way that is consistent with um, who the Lord is in our lives. So um, the head has the greater responsibility for the success of the relationship. Now, trouble. Sin. At this point, sin enters into the picture. The entrance of sin, of human sin, changed everything. Following Eve's lead, after she was seduced by the serpent, Adam disobeyed the covenant. I'm sure you've all read that passage where it says, and her husband was there with her. The whole time that this stuff was going on between this serpent who was trying to seduce or lure her into disobedience, he was there. And what he should have done was said, what are you doing? Smack that thing out of her hand or stop her before she picked it or certainly stop her before she bit into it or whatever. It was his job. He, would, he just simply should have said, you know what God said. I told you what God said. We are not to eat of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. No. But he was there observing the whole thing and then she handed it to him and he ate the fruit. Sin changed everything. Sin shattered the covenant, specifying God's rule over man. Sin brought God's curse of death upon all mankind. You see, all were meant to be included in the covenant blessings or curses that Abraham had because we were all, he was the federal head of the human race. This is why we all are subject to death because we have inherited this through our Ancient forefather, Adam. Sin brought God's curse of death. Sin got Adam and Eve kicked out of the garden. With Adam's sin, every human being was henceforth condemned to die. Humanity became separated from God and lost the benefits that flow from living obediently under his rightful rule. And very, very, very important, Genesis chapter 3 reveals that sin changed the nature of leadership in the home as Adam and Eve were cast out of the Garden of Eden. Here we have a couple of passages that will help to build this uh, understanding. To the woman he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. 
Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. Now, this is new. This is different. This word rule is not the same word as have dominion in chapter 1. This is a whole brand new thing that has come about because of the failure of Adam's headship and because sin has now entered into the picture. Now, if you're um, wondering about that whole idea, your desire shall be contrary to your husband, he shall rule over you. I want to show you one more uh, passage of Scripture in the next chapter, chapter 4 of Genesis, which gives us a little more texture and information about this. There's not time to really break it down, but it really is speaking of the conflicting desires that Eve would feel, but when those desires conflicted with her husband, they were to be, she was to yield her desires to her husband's leadership. The Lord said to Cain, why are you angry? Why is your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is contrary to you but you must rule over it. So in back-to-back chapters here, the same phraseology is used to indicate that there, there now would be conflicting desires in this relationship, just like there are conflicting desires between my nature and sin. And there's something that comes up, and, it want, but if, and if I don't keep that thing under control, it is crouching at the door. It is pictured as a wild animal ready to pounce, ready to destroy me if I don't keep this thing um, in subjection. All right, so becoming severed from God brought pain and domination into marriage, into the marriage relationship. The word for rule here, he will rule over you, is different than the word dominion in the creation account. This word means to govern over or to control or to master. He will govern over or control. He will master you. In Eden, only God was the master. But after Eden, husbands typically filled that role. Husbands typically have lorded it over their wives in the marriage relationship, and the women have yielded to it because they are dependent upon the marriage relationship because of their dependency, because of their vulnerability in this world. So biblical headship was left behind in Eden and was replaced and has been replaced to this very day by patriarchy. But that's where the change came, and that's how that change came about. Biblical... um, Uh, biblical headship and patriarchy are absolutely not the same thing. Here's how you can observe or know the difference. Headship strives for God's rule. Patriarchy strives for male rule. Okay, that's the difference. And what we are being... Well, what we are being called into is not patriarchy and just a a replication, a bad replication of a bad replication of a bad replication, which is what that is broken down into, having become a very, oftentimes a very oppressive structure in terms of the family itself, right? We are now called back into headship, and that's why it's so important that we understand this concept. Genesis 3 describes pain and patriarchy as the default condition of the human family or, of, or of, of any given family in our fallen and broken world. The imposition of a husband's will is now the default condition of marriage to which women must adapt for better or for worse. That is the sad story how, of how things have come to be the way that they are, but happily that is not the end of the story. Jesus to the rescue. Amen. The good news It's like Paul Harvey. And now, 
the rest of the story. Missed that guy, huh? The good news is Christ came to replace Adam and establish a new humanity that believes in him or that yields in obedience to God. Christ has made obedience to God something that we should look at and say, that's good. It's hard, but it's good. Okay, so Christ changes that whole picture, and he's come to establish a new humanity. Through Christ, God has established a new covenant with humanity. Last week when we received communion together, we celebrated that covenant. This, cu- this, uh, you know, this bread uh, is my body broken for you. This cup is my blood shed for you. Through this, many sins will be forgiven. So do the, whenever you do this, do it in remembrance of me. In other words, we, we are celebrating the covenant. And the, the wonderful part about the covenant that we are, we are sharers in or partakers of is the covenant was made between God and God. See, every other covenant broke down because it was made between God and human beings. And guess which side botched the covenant up? Right? Every time, because God had laid out conditions. If you do this, here are the blessings that will happen. If you, if you fail to do this, these are the curses. In every case, there's a breakdown on the human side in terms of all covenants. But there was no breakdown in the covenant between the Father and the Son. It was fully ratified. Jesus took it all away, fulfilled it completely, lived a perfectly obedient life. As Philippians says, he became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. What were the blessings? For this reason, God has also highly exalted him and given him a name that is above every other name of the name. You know the passage, right? You know the thing. (laughs) So um, through Christ, God has established a new covenant with us. We really can't botch this thing up. This is really true. In other words, we have been entered, we have entered into it through no other merit except to have believed it. If I believe it, I can enter into it. That's all that, that's all that uh, God requires. Just believe. If you uh, believe in your, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the mouth man confesses unto salvation, with the heart man believes unto righteousness, right? So that whole passage from Romans chapter 10, all I have to do to become share. Now, what am I a share in? I am a share in all of the blessings, all of the perks, all of the trophies that Jesus completely earned. He's got it all now. That's why in the, this, when this book opens up, he says, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus, Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. Even as he chose us before the foundation of the world in love, he predestined us to adoption. I mean, he just goes through it. We've gone through it so many times. Boom, 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 boom. Blessing after blessing after blessing. How do I get all these blessings? I just simply believe that Christ has fulfilled God's covenant in every way, has now earned all the trophies, and I get to to be a sharer in that because I am now in Christ. Unbelievable. Unbelievable. So in the same way that I picked up all the bad stuff from Adam and now my flesh will have to die and I don't like that idea, I picked up all the good stuff from Christ. I fully inherit all of his blessings and benefits. They are all now mine. Hallelujah. That is such an important reality. So it, the, the blessings include forgiveness of sins, 
the beginning of restoration of the blessings back first proclaimed in Genesis chapter 1, and it will culminate in paradise restored at Christ's return. That's what's in store for you and I. The first Adam failed his headship, but Christ, the second Adam, demonstrated everything that headship was ever designed to be. Notice the following declarations made by the Lord Jesus himself. Okay, when he speaks of his own purpose. He says, for I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. He says to his disciples, if you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept the Father's commandments and abide in his love. This takes, takes us back to that passage in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. He says, I want you to know that uh, uh, Christ is the head of, of every husband, the husband is the head of his wife, and uh, God is the head of Christ. And, it, and like I, I do this, I go through this with every couple that I uh, take through a pre-marriage type of uh, counseling type of thing. It's like God is the head of Christ, who is the head of the husband, who is the head of the wife. There's a flow chart here, and Jesus is speaking of that in uh, John chapter 15 when he says, as the Father has loved me, I also have loved you. If you continue, if you keep my commandments, you will continue in my love, just like I keep the Father's commandments, and I continue in his love. In other words, he says, everything that you see that is going on between the Father and I, just apply that to you and me. And then, if we, if you, and then in order to get the full realization, we will step it down one more time, apply that to husband and wife. So if, the more the husband and wife um, replicates the Father and the Son, the more we see that, and, and maybe the next week we'll talk about that and break that down a little bit, because the, to see the dynamics between the Father and the Son, what it meant for, the, for God to be the head of Christ, what it, that, then I understand what it means for Christ to be the head of me. And then I can understand what it means for me to be the head of my wife. It all starts making sense because it is all fully observable in the, the, the excellent life of the Lord Jesus Christ. <clears throat> the goal of Christ's lordship is to lead men and women to surrender self-rule and embrace God's rule over their lives. This is the gospel of the kingdom that Jesus came to preach. When we embrace God's rule over our lives, we superimpose God's design over the default conditions of the fall. Let me say that again. When we embrace God's rule, when we obediently come into God, when we are willing to allow God to rule over our lives, we superimpose now God's design over the default conditions of the fall. Jesus' single-minded exaltation of God's authority gradually untangles sinful, fallen practices of racial domination, economic domination, and gender domination. These are all the things that the left is screaming about today. Racial domination, gender domination, right? They see the whole, the cultural Marxism, it all goes back to Marx, it all goes back to Marx was the first one who said the whole world is set up in an oppressive, in an, in an oppressive structure because there are rich people and poor people. There are people who have, he saw the whole thing as economics. Later on, in, in those who were in, in the, in the um, uh, Frankfurt School in the early 20th century expanded that definition of oppression to every possible structure, every possible human structure. All The church is oppressive. The government is oppressive. Men are oppressive over women. Uh, whites are oppressive over black. And this is the nature of the cultural, which we hear a lot today about critical theory, right? Critical theory applies it specifically to racial issues. 
But it is really, critical theory had to do with every strata of society and, and to point out the, the endemic or systemic oppression built into everything, the, the, the goal behind the whole thing. I'm getting a little off track here, but, but the goal behind this whole thing in terms of where the left is at is they just want to destroy it all. That's why we took the first few weeks and we said, um, if, if, if the uh, foundations be destroyed, what can the righteous do? Psalm 11, right? They are looking to destroy the foundations. But I got to get back to headship because we'll get, we'll get into that some other time. <clears throat> Jesus' single mind exaltation of God's authority gradually untangles sinful fallen patterns of racial domination, economic domination, and gender domination. Notice how Paul teaches this very truth. He says, as many as of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Does that, do you follow that? In other words, those previous tags that are part of our humanity that inevitably cause us to fight and squabble and want to get a bigger piece of the pie and, and bring so much contentiousness and oppression into the world, that's over. Because I am a new creature in Christ. The old has passed away. Behold, all things have become new. Now, until Christ returns, the default conditions of the fall will remain. In marriage, the default condition remains the rule of husbands over their wives. That's not an endorsement. That's just an observation. The default condition remains the rule of husbands over their wives, but... In Christ, we are learning a new way, okay? Actually, it's not a new way. It is really the old way. It is the headship way. It was the way that it was supposed to be manifested in, in Adam, but he dropped the ball. He botched it. We are no longer to lord it over one another. There's no place for that kind of thing in Christ. There's no place for coercive authority, Coercive authority is never condoned. Manipulative authority is never condoned in Christ. Christ is none of that. And so if I bring that to my marriage, I'm back in the old patriarchy thing. I'm just still practicing the, the fallen pattern instead of coming into the new pattern, which is, uh, which is grounded in Christ. In Christian marriage, there is a mingling of the old but there is a gradual, if our marriage is being spirit-guided, spirit-directed, there is a gradual morphing into the new. If Christ is really ruling in my relationship and in my marriage. Here's a, a simple kind of pithy statement that will really help to put a lot of the stuff that I'm saying. When God's will, put it together, when God's will is subordinated to the couple's will, the struggle for dominance continues. When the couple's will is subordinated to God's will, there is no need for dominance since both are following the same Lord. Doesn't that make total sense? Now, if in, the, if in the, my marriage relationship, if I'm full tilt trying to follow the Lord and I can't seem to connect with my wife, well, then we have to have a talk about where we are in the Lord. 
whether or not Jesus is actually Lord of our lives. Because if Jesus is actually Lord of our lives, then I don't, have a, I don't have a goal, I don't have a purpose. It's not my thing, it's not your thing, it's his thing. And we both collaborate together doing what we have come to discern as the will of God. No need for dominance. This is why the Lord designed headship to be the practice for the Christian home or for the Christian marriage. Husbands have no need to dominate. The couple, the couple simply follows as the Lord guides. Here's an important statement. The fallen default mode of authority that Jesus observed and, and that is consistent with the world that we're in, the fallen default mode of authority was so distasteful to Christ that he expressly forbade his followers from following it. Here's what he said on the night that he was arrested. You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life a ransom for many. Paul spelled out the ideal of marital headship in detail here in this book that we are studying, this book of Ephesians. Here's what he wrote as we get to the latter portion of chapter 5. To the husband, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. <sighs> Baby, <laughs> that's, uh, that's a high bar. That's up there. How did Christ love the church? He gave it everything. He laid his life down. Again, back to that whole statement in Philippians chapter 2, where, you know, it says, let this attitude be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something that he had to reach out or try to grasp for. But being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself, became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. Okay? So he fulfilled God's will. I was thinking about this in, in preparation for the message, that, that Jesus has made God's, or what should happen as we, as we look at the beautiful life of the Lord Jesus, we should see, or, or it should dawn on us, that is beautiful. That is lovely. That's what, I, that's what I want everybody else to be, and that's what I know I ought to be. That ought to be me. And I realize right now I'm, I'm far, far, far from that. In other words, it, it made obedience to God attractive. Now, someone might say, well, what about going to the cross? That doesn't seem any too attractive. Well, no, it's just the honest reality that if I'm going to be a follower of Jesus, it's going to take me into tough things. It's going to take me to the cross on some level in my life. I will have to be willing to lay my life down. That is utterly consistent with the New Testament, right? And it applies to all of our lives in, in a variety of different ways. But it, Jesus came to make obedience to God appear to be the beautiful thing so as then to inspire us to ourselves want to uh, follow his example and to, uh, to, uh, to obey the Lord. So he says, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of the water with the word, that he might present the church to himself. Uh, in, in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy 
and without blemish. There is nothing here about Genesis 3 patriarchy. There is nothing here about rule or subordination. Um, all there is is a, is a very encouraging message about how husbands should love their wives as Christ loved the church. That is the concept that drives the whole idea of biblical headship as far as the husband's side of the picture. For the wife, oh, did I not put it up there? <laughs> Too bad. I'll, just, I'll charge you less next week. You can get to see. <clears throat> For the wife, we'll get this one up. We want to get this one up now, you know, because, yeah, we, we well, you know. Wives, submit to your own husbands. I love the, the J.B. Phillips translation because, oh, man, we just chafe over that S word, don't we? Submit! Right? It's just got this tone to it. It's, a, it's like everything's like, oh, don't say that word to me. Right? Terrible word, right? Uh, but J.B. Phillips says, Why, you wives should learn to adapt yourselves to your husbands. Now, taking it back to Adam and Eve, right? Adam, he got his charge. He got his marching orders. He was told what to do. Then God created Eve. If she had come in and said, forget that. We're not doing that. We're doing, this is what we're going to do, right? Problem, right? She was built to assist him in fulfilling God's function. It wasn't his will. It wasn't his tyranny. It wasn't his directive. It wasn't about him. It wasn't the thing that was going to make him the top dog or any of that. It was, he was simply to carry out the plan as God had directed him, and she was right there at his side to help him to accomplish that. Is that not reasonable? No? All right. I guess forget it. Is that not reasonable? Isn't it? Right? It is so utterly re Is there a woman in the world that doesn't want to have a man who will love her like Christ loved the church? Tell me. I don't think so. Not really. So, now, to the wives, again, that don't, please don't chafe over that submit word, right? A wife is encouraged to submit to her husband's love and his godly character. That's the deal. A wife is encouraged to submit to her husband's love and to his godly character as the church submits to Christ's love and his godly character. Jesus never demanded blind submission. Check out Paul's conclusion. And we, we touched on this last week. Because after he has gone through all this stuff about how we ought to be treating one another, again, all this practical stuff in chapter 4 and chapter 5, he says, because now he's brought up this whole issue of marriage, right? And the relationship, the human relationship of marriage and how it ought to be built on this on, the, on this platform of headship rather than the platform of patriarchy, Paul says, this mystery is profound. And I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself and let the wife see that she respects her husband. Who is the onus on here? Is it on the wife? No, it is on the husband. It is on the husband to love his wife and lead his wife and lead his family like Christ loved the church and led the church and sacrificed himself for the church. This, that's what headship, that's what 
the meaning of biblical headship. Biblical headship is all about. That it is a replication of the life of Christ. It is an application of these truths that were manifested in him. Again, when we looked at that scripture before, and Jesus says, you know that the, you know, the Gentiles exercise lordship by having domination over one another. But it's not supposed to be that way among you. It, it must not be that way among you. Whoever would be the greatest among you, he must become the servant of all of the others. It just makes total sense. And so that's why I say, if you, if, if you and your spouse sit down and talk about this, you will find that most of the contentious problems come from the fact that there are still unsurrendered desires to the will of God. That's why we're fighting. We're fighting over the money. We're fighting over sex. We're fighting whatever we, we may be fighting about. The contentiousness comes about because I still want my way. And I'm not willing to yield my life over to the Lordship of Jesus, and neither are you, and so we have a lot of contention in our relationship. Kind of the way it works. But the more there is a willingness to say, it's not my will, and it's not your will, it's his will, let's try to discern it, and let's try to cooperate together to make this happen. You know, my wife isn't here because she's up doing something with the kids, but my wife is such an example of this. Because in all these 43 years of marriage, my wife has made zero demands. Now, God has blessed us in every way. We've had everything that we need. We've owned homes and all of it. So God has provided everything that we have needed all on the way. But my wife has, and in order to do this or in order to do the Christian school before this, and all, all of those things required a certain level of like willingness to not make money. <laughs> you know, not that I'm not making money right now, but I was just simply saying to launch out into all these things, to step out in faith and all these things, there were many times when she just was going to have to bite the bullet, not have maybe the things that some other, she doesn't have a house now. So it's good for me to be able to say this, right? Um, but I'm just saying, like, that's what has made it work. I'm kind of like the public profile guy. Here I am. I'm standing in front of everybody. Everybody knows me. She's like the person in the background. But without her partnership, we'd have been done a long time ago. That's how it actually works in the real world. I thank God for my wife. Let's pray. Lord, thank you that not only do you teach us truths, but then you come into our world, become one of us, Show us what it looks like and then take it to the, the nth degree by offering yourself. And then all we're supposed to do is just observe that and say, how can I get some of that in my relationship? How can I learn this concept of headship and employ it in my marriage?